So grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, uh, working our way through the uh, miracles of Jesus, through the lens of Matthew in the morning and John in the evening. And uh, this is our third week in chapter 8. We really could spend a fourth week, uh, but we will try to avoid that. Um, But Matthew chapter 8, we want to read verse 23, 34, page 856, your pew Bibles. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The evangelist Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Behold, they cried, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go, and they came out and went into the pigs. Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going to the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always, you open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, our, our mouth, our hands, our feet. We go obedience to Christ that we would follow him through the storm and through the gatherings. Lord, uh, convict our, our hearts this morning, and may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I don't know how your parents did it, but when we were um, young warthogs, particularly my brother and I, we would have family meetings. And family meetings meant you're, you're about to get a whooping, right? But before we got the whooping, right, mom and dad would sit us down, and explain why we're getting a whooping, right? They would put us on trial, and we already knew that the verdict would come back guilty, but we'd go through this trial anyways. I think it was to postpone the inevitable. If they would just spank us, and we'd go back on our lives, but, but it was that prolonging of the whooping that really just made it worse. But, but they would get really frustrated, because my brother and I both had this habit of every time they said something to us, like, you know that when you get home from school, you got to put your bags up, you got to do your homework, and you need to do the dishes, whatever the chore might be. We'd say, yeah, I know. And you know that, that whenever you do that, it really sets your brother off, and he, he, he gets really mad. Yeah, I know. And don't you know that in whatever the next thing is, I know. I know. I know. And at that point, they would just lose it. Well, if you knew, why did you do it? At which point we would say, I know. No, we, we wouldn't do that. We, we knew that our, our time was up and the whoopings were about to, to commence. That's what bothers them the most. It was the fact that we knew what to do, or in some cases what not to do. We knew what was expected of us. And yet, despite the knowledge, we still acted in disobedience. Because they rightly understood the problem wasn't just disobedience, though that was a serious problem. It was 
an effect of disrespect of authority. Here are expectations. Here are standards. You know what they are, yet you refuse to respect them. The same is true with Christ. Chances are, you and I here, in fact, the reason we here is we know who Jesus is. The way we often live our lives and how we go about our faith, it seems as if we don't really know who he is. The same is true really for our culture. People don't have a problem with, with, with who they think Jesus is. But when it comes to responding accordingly, that is where... We put up the walls. Notice the authority of Jesus is demonstrating verses 23 through 27 with his authority over the natural world. Right? Pretty straightforward passage and pretty straightforward uh, application. Jesus shows he is Lord over nature. Now, we've done this before, but, but for those who, who maybe haven't heard this before, and we won't do the, the whole book of, of Matthew, Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels, and, and his big theme, the one thing he wants you to get out of this is that Jesus is king. Now, as we'll see, he gives other titles, but the big idea is that Jesus is king. So let me just get you caught up, since we're not going verse by verse the way we traditionally do. Uh, let me get you caught up how that theme has shown up in Matthew's gospel thus far, right? The birth of the king is in chapters 1 and 2. You, you remember how the, Matthew starts out with genealogy, right? But you remember how the first verse of the book is. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and then it proceeds to give you the genealogy of Jesus through the lens of Abraham and David. Now, why are those two people important? Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. David is the king. So right away, we are given in the genealogy of Jesus. Not only is he descended of David, he's descended of the throne of David. And all those kings are right there in his line, right there in Matthew 1. In Matthew chapter 2, what do we, we meet these really fun guys. These fun guys called magi. You've heard me say before, uh, we call them wise men, but that's an oxymoron, like state workers, right? Um, and, and, but what are the magi? What is their job? Their job is to crown a king. That's their job. They're going to crown the king. They come from afar, and uh, they're firemen. They came from afar. And they come from afar, and then they come into Israel. Where do they go first? They go to the supposed king of Israel, and they determine this guy is an it's. And then they go down and they find in a house a little toddler named Jesus. And they say, this, this is the king. We have followed a star. And they give gifts fitting royalty, gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. And in chapters 3 and 4, for the three of you that got that joke, in chapters 3 and 4, we, we get the message of the king, right? The message of the king. And that message is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It comes from John the Baptist, right? He is, he is preparing the way like any king would have a, an ambassador go before him to make sure the way is straight and everything's off the road. And it's a, it's, we do the same thing, the Secret Service, you know, you, they, they, they clear the path, you know, make sure there's, there's no, no danger or anything like that. And John the Baptist prepares the way by declaring, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can't have a kingdom without a king. Jesus shows up, and what's his message? The kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repents. And in chapter 4, we see that Jesus is the rightful king of the earth. You remember the temptation Jesus has given, right? The temptation is, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if the price is right. Now, why would that temptation make sense? Now, it would be a temptation to me, right? Because I would raise taxes so that I can, you know, dive in gold coins like, uh, is it... 
Scrooge McDuck. There you go. Thank you. Yes. A child of the 90s. There it is. Yeah. And, and my minions, Dewey, Huey, and Louie, would hang out with me, right? I'll let you decide which of the three is Dewey, Huey, and Louie. But nevertheless, um, it's a temptation for Jesus because he's already king. He's king. In chapters uh, 5 and 7, you, you get the Sermon on the Mount where he, he speaks as king. In that day, people will say to me upon my throne, Lord, Lord. And I will say, I did not know you. But here we see in chapters 8 and bleeding into chapter 9, we'll see next week's the authority of the king. He shows his authority over sickness, his authority over the earth and his miracles, his exorcisms, authority over evil. Jesus is king. And this is made explicitly clear here. He has authority over nature and he has authority over the supernatural world. Notice the problem there in verse 24. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Now, I want you to highlight the word great. The Greek word is mega, right? It's where we get our word mega. And that's something you can learn. That word will show up later in verse 26 with a great calm. You start with a great storm and it ends up with a great calm. Matthew uses that word on, on purpose. And is a storm. The Greek word is seismos, where we get seismology. And, and it means a shaking. This isn't just hard rain. The, the seas is, is shaking beneath them. The, the, it's as if the whole earth is, is rattling. The, the waves are coming up onto the boat, and they are in, in danger. And so they ask there in verse 25, they, they plead, they beg, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And don't forget, these are fishermen. And the, these are fishermen who fish by sea. They go out on the boat. They've been in plenty of bad storms before. But this one they know is unique. If, if the storm doesn't stop, they will likely perish. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 26, he said to them, why are you afraid? Well, I know the answer to that, right? I know the answer to that. Well, let's be honest. Some of us still as adults, when the storm wakes us up, we start freaking out, Right? You turn on the TV, you check in your, your phone to see, do I need to go downstairs, right? I, it wasn't too long ago, a few years ago, uh, shortly after we moved here, that I knew that if the storm woke me up, I might as well grab my pillow and a blanket, go into the bedroom, lay on the couch, because it won't be long before you hear little feet coming down the stairs, right? I get kicked out of my bed, right? Why are you afraid? I can tell you why they're afraid. They're afraid they're going to die. That's why they say, save us. We are going to perish. But he said, well, what are you afraid of? You lack faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Notice, Jesus rebuked both the disciples and the storm. And in his rebuke, both became calm. Right there in the same verse. We often see it as a miracle towards the storm, but don't miss the miracle towards the disciples. The rebuke calms both. They seem to have forgotten Jesus was in the boats. And the response there in verse 27 is really the main point of this little vignette. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the sea obeys him? That's the question, isn't it? We could even say that's the question of the gospel. Who is this guy? That the winds obey him. Now, we read that story and we think, yeah, that, that, I'd ask a question like that too if I were just driving along and this guy said, hey, I think this storm should stop and he stops. I'd, I'd be asking questions like that. But these disciples know their Bible. Know their Bible better than we do. It's fascinating. They were illiterate but knew their Bible better than we who are illiterate and don't know our Bible. 
I'll let you come with an application on that. But Psalm 89, 8 and 9 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 46, 1 to 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Psalm 107 sounds like it was written for this story. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord. His wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Then he cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. In fact, we could even look at the narrative of Jonah. Remember him? You know, remember the VeggieTales movie? You remember that in Jonah, God both brings the storm and he calms the storm. So it makes sense to these guys. They, they know their Bible. They're in the middle of the storm and Jesus merely speaks to the storm and it stops. No wonder they're asking, I've read about you. Could it be? Could it be true? Who is this guy that can calm the sea, the winds, and the rain? Well, then he shows his authority over the supernatural world. They get off the sea, no doubt kissing the ground. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demonized men meet him, coming out from the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, that is a problem, right? That is a problem. Having just got off the boat, they are confronted with a very different threats. Two demonized men who live among the tombs. Now, this was common at this time uh, to choose the graveyards for, for such people. They were physical threats. and The entire city knew that they were physical threats and tried to avoid them. No one could bind these men. No one could subdue them. No, no chain was strong enough for them. They were a genuine danger to society. And then notice what these men do in verse 29. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us for it? Now notice there, the disciples cried out before, didn't they? Now the demonized cry out here. You see the similarities in the stories. And there's a lot of similarity in these two stories. Why we, we need to read them together. I think Matthew wants us to read them together. They cry out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? That's a weird term, isn't it? We take it for granted, but if you've been reading Matthew's gospel, you'll find this is not a commonly used word thus far in his gospel. In fact, one other time in Matthew's gospel does anyone call Jesus the Son of God. Anyone know who it was? Bible quiz time. Any guess who it was? Satan, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Only Satan has rightly identified Jesus as the Son of God. Chapter 4, verse 3, if you are the Son of God, command these uh, stones to turn to bread. Chapter 4, verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and he quotes from the Psalms. Now, it isn't until chapter 14 that you have uh, people begin to refer to him as the Son of God. Chapter 14, verse 33, it's after he walks on the water, calms the storm. Those in the boat worship him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The stories here in chapter 8 and 14 are similar. Chapter 16, verse 16. Remember, what is the Simon Peter said? You are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. Chapter 27, the centurion, you remember as Jesus died, what did he say? Truly, this was the son of God. Now, we're not there yet. Remember, Matthew is writing the story. He wants the reader to ask, who is this man? And he puts it on the lips of the disciples. So he gets to off the calm storm. He comes into the Gadarenes. And what does he find? Another storm, more chaos, more uncertainty. And what is coming from the mouth of the demonized? I know who you are. What are you doing here? You are the son of God. Thus, the demons are answering the question asked by the disciples. You are the son of God. In fact, you'll notice in chapter eight, Jesus hasn't been called this. He has only been called Lord. You can see there in verse two, verse six, verse eight to give you three examples. But what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus isn't merely Lord. He is God. Lords have authority to cleanse lepers, to heal the paralytic. But God has power over nature and the supernatural world itself. What are they afraid of? They are afraid that the Lord of the earth, the Son of God, has come to conquer them. And that's exactly what he does. The demons know who he is, and they respond accordingly. They know he has come to conquer. And so they plead, just like the disciples Plan. They, please, please help us. We're, we're going to perish. So they plead. And it's there, verse 30, 31. A lot of debate about these. We don't have time to get into the whole debate. There were a herd of pigs feeding at some distance, and they beg him, cast us into the pigs. And so Jesus says, I gone then. All right? And they go into the pigs, and the whole rush turn into lemurs. The whole uh, herd turn into lemurs, and they jump off the cliff and they perish. So I just want to point out two things here because it's a lot of debate about this. So I just want to give you cliff notes. One is the presence of pigs suggests this is a Gentile region, right? You're not going to have a herd of pigs in downtown Jerusalem, okay? Not without all of them and the owner getting stoned, okay? You're just not going to do that. So you have pigs. I think the big idea we were to see is, is that Jesus takes unclean spirits. He, he, he rebukes them into unclean animals. And they perish in an unclean land. I think that's what Matthew is doing. I could be wrong. I'll ask him when I see him in heaven, right? Right? That, that Fanny Crosby we just sang, right? I'll know him, right? And the day will come. So, so you have unclean spirits go into unclean animals in an unclean land. So we are to see Jesus is standing in the midst of the unclean, right? That's what we are to see. Now, here's the question. What happened to the demons? Do they perish? I don't know. I went to seminary to give you that great insight. Aren't you glad? Yeah, I paid a lot of money for that insight. I read a lot of commentaries in prayer. Aren't you glad I got that information? But here's what I think Matthew is doing in the narrative. In the narrative, if the pigs perish, the demons perish. Now, whether they're gone forevermore, I don't know. But in the narrative, we are to see Jesus conquering over the demonic world. Thus, he has authority over the storm, so he calms it. He has authority over the demons, thus he conquers them. That's what we are supposed to see, I, I believe. And so he rebukes them, go, and so they obey. Now, what is really striking about this story isn't the pigs. It's the response to Jesus. Notice verse 33, the herdsmen fled, right? They ain't got no pigs no more, right? Have they got a story to tell the press 
And going to the city, they told everything, especially what has happened to the demon-possessed men. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they fell down. They worshiped him. And they said, truly, you are the Son of God. That's a good story. That's a good story. We can close our Bibles. We can pray. And maybe we can beat the storm. If only, right? That's a terrible ending of this story, isn't it? They come back and say, oh, hey, hey, Jesus, Jesus, yeah, 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 yeah. Look, look, you can leave now. You can leave now. We heard what you did. You can leave now. Now, now think about it. This, these guys were terrorizing that community. Jesus comes and takes care of it. They don't care. These unclean spirits were, were, were at the mercies of, uh, or this, these men were at the mercy of these unclean spirits. And now they've been liberated. Couldn't care less. Remember that if this son of God has the power and authority over even unclean spirits, then he has such power and authority over everything, including the people of this Gentile town. That's the part that bothers them, I think. So what are we to make of all of this? Well, it's clear the disciples in the storm were hopeless. The demonized were enslaved. And Jesus conquers both. But what are we to do about that? I think this text demonstrates that there really are only two choices when it comes to being confronted with Jesus. Really, at the end of the day, there's only two choices. The first is discipleship. And this is really, I think, the main point of this entire chapter. I love this chapter. Every story is connected, and one story leads to the next story. Matthew's a really good storyteller. All the gospel writers, Matthew's a really good storyteller. Notice the trajectory of the disciple in chapter 8. It begins with repentance in verses 1 to 4, right? He, he pleads with Jesus. Remember that leprosy is related to sin and judgment. He comes, he says, if you will, if you so desire, he begs, will you not make me clean? And what does Jesus do? He cleanses him and sends him to the temple. There a sacrifice will be made, and the gospel is pictured there so beautifully. We get repentance and we get belief, chapters, verse 5 and 13. This is a centurion servant. Remember, what did Jesus say? I've not seen such faith in all of Israel. It's belief, repentance, belief, uh, service, verses 14 and 16. This is Peter's mother-in-law, remember? She's sick, uh, and, and, and Jesus comes and touches her, and she feels better. You remember what she does then? She doesn't call her health insurance company and say, cancel that, I don't need the test. What she does is she gets up and she starts serving Jesus. So you get repentance, you get faith, you get service, and, verse, and finally, fourthly, you get discipleship, where they follow after Jesus. I showed you this last week, but it bears worth repeating here because this is the root issue of chapter 8. Notice, after you get the healing of the lepers and and Peter's mother-in-law, you get a section about discipleship followed by two more miracles. Actually, three if you go into chapter 9. But in two more miracles, the, the calming of the storm, cleansing of, of, of the uh, demoniacs. So verse 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Now how is he going to get to the other side? By boat. And what's going to happen when he gets on boat? It's going to get a little rocky. A scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, right? You see it? You see, you see the trajectory? And what did Jesus say? Yeah, no, you won't. Next. 
Jesus, don't you know, I'll go wherever you want, but first let me sell my dad's property after he dies. He's still living in good health, by the way. And then I can sell everything, and then we can have enough money to, to, to keep doing this stuff. Jesus say, I'll just let him go bury the dead. You, you, you just come follow me, which means they ain't going to follow Jesus. And then it says there, verse 22, Follow me, leave the dead, bury their own dead, verse 23. And when he got into the boats, what does it say there? The disciples followed him. You see, you got two people. One doesn't want to be homeless. The other doesn't want to be uh, with, without family and, and in poverty. But the disciples go to Jesus, even if it means a rocky storm. Because if Jesus is in the boat, you're all right. You're all right. It's about discipleship. This whole chapter is about discipleship. And, and they experience that when Jesus calms the storm, they're at calm. But it requires the buking of both. And so when they come to the other end of the side, they encounter the, the, the demonic world. And what do we find again is, is that Jesus performs yet another miracle, essentially the same miracle. And yet instead of responding as the leper and the centurion servant and the disciples do, they respond not with discipleship but with resentments. The city can't deny who Jesus is, not just Lord, but God. And instead of worshiping him, they reject him. One of the things I have found in my experience is that there is the claim that people of faith are irrational. But I have found the opposite to be equally true. Those without faith and those who are hard-hearted are much more irrational. The human heart doesn't want to submit to a higher authority and so will rationalize just about anything and everything just so they don't have to submit to that higher authority. Chesterton is right when, I believe prophetically, says, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He starts to believe in everything. Have you seen that in our world today? We don't know the basic definition of words unless a definition suits me politically. Then all of a sudden, we're not postmodern anymore. We rationalize anything just so we can have our way. Paul describes it this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we give them PhD in their own shows on CNN or whatever channel it is that we're not supposed to like these days. They become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, in this story, the city is no different than the demons. They know who Jesus is. And that's where it stops. They can't deny who Jesus is. But they don't want to go farther than that. I think I can prove this. There's a word used three times in this chapter as strategic points. The word is parakaleo. That'll be on your test. Write it in Greek letters, otherwise you fail. The word means to beg or, or to appeal. Para means parallel, you know, alongside of. Kaleo means calls. It's the call alongside of. It's, um, the word is used in, in particularly in a noun in a quite interesting way. It just means to beg. Look at verse 5 of chapter 8. The centurion comes forward and what does he do? He begs Jesus, come heal my 
servant, my boy slave who's perilous. That's one response. You, you come and you beg and you respond with faith. Discipleship. Chapter 8, verse 31, the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herds of pigs. Same word. Different response. The question then is, which way will the city go? Will they go the way of the centurion or will they go the way of the demons? Chapter 8, verse 34. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they parakaleo, they begged him to leave. Throughout America, it seems in my experience, people don't have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with a Jesus who is more than just an ancient rabbi. A Jesus who has authority over the natural world and the supernatural world has authority over me. That's the problem. But there's no way of getting around that. Either we respond with faith and discipleship or we respond with nails and a hammer. Either way, we must choose. So what are you going to do about it? The most significant question we could ever ask ourselves in this life is, who is Jesus? If Jesus is the son of the living God who has power over nature and the demons and death itself, sidelining him is not an option, which is, I fear, exactly what we have done over the last two years. You know, one of the things that my parents complain about my brother and I was, was we, we again, we, we claim that we knew and we knew what we were supposed to do. We knew what we weren't supposed to do. We, we knew what the expert, we, we knew all of that sort of stuff. But again, their beef wasn't our disobedience. Their beef was our failure to respect their authority. They rightly understood that parents should never have to ask a second time. Nor should Christ. If he is who the Bible says he is, and I think that is in fact the case, then we dare not respond callously, but we must respond as disciples. Who is this man that death itself cannot conquer him? So when he calls, we follow. When he says believe, why don't we believe? When he says the come, why don't we come? When he says to do, why don't we do? When he says the go, why don't we go? Let's pray.